I'm Roy Shartles and welcome to the Unknown Origins podcast. Why are you listening to this podcast? Are you an industry expert looking for insights? Are you growing your career? Or are you a dear friend helping to spur your old pal on? I created the Unknown Origins podcast to have the most inspiring conversations with creative industry personalities and experts about entrepreneurship, pop culture, art, music, film, and fashion. The Modernist Society is a creative project and community of interest company that seeks to change people's perceptions of modernist architecture and design by producing accessible events and products which celebrate the bold, brutal, and beautiful. It has five chapters located in Manchester, Sheffield, Leeds, Liverpool, and Birmingham, dedicated to celebrating and engaging with 20th century architecture and design through publishing, events, exhibitions, and creative collaborations. Their publishing arm, The Modernist, is a small press that publishes limited quarterly editions about 20th century architecture and design to educate and entertain whilst being beautiful and engaging. I'm delighted to be joined by Eddie Reed, who is one of the founding members and co-editor-in-chief of The Modernist magazine, to discuss The Modernist and its creative pursuits. Welcome, Eddie. It's uh, very humble, in fact. Uh, I've looked at some of the other participants and uh, I've been very good company by the looks of it. Uh, I'm very uh, honoured that you've asked me. By definition, what does modernism mean to you? I don't know if you, I don't know if you saw our, our motto. We, t- we took our motto uh, towards a, a braver, more noble age. Um, we took that from um, the, the 1945 Manchester Plan, which was a plan put together by the, uh, the City Council for post-war reconstruction. And the phrase towards a braver, more noble age kind of sums up you know, there have been failings. We're pragmatic and we're realistic and hopefully objective about there have been failings. But with modernism, uh, the overriding uh, sense of it all was that it was to improve people's lives. Yeah. Uh, be it through architecture, be it through art, be it through the welfare state. And we love that optimism that modernism has, you know, looking forward. There's, there's no again go back to brexit and all this bullshit about sovereignty and all that you know we don't believe in that we want to reach out to our european cousins we don't want to hark back to a, a an age that didn't exist you know yeah. uh, we want to look we want to look forward with with an with a with an optimism and you know in our own tidy little way are we improving somebody's lives you know when we send a tea towel with a an office block or with a towel block on it We've improved their lives, hopefully. Somebody came in for a job interview the other day and they were telling us about how they uh, they picked up the magazine and she, she didn't say it as much And because I, I stopped her because I, she said, you know, it, it changed the way she looked at things. And, we, you know, that's so amazing. Yeah. Just our little magazine changed one person's way of looking at certain things, you know, and, and that that's great. And I just think in, you know, with anything that's gone on in the last five or six years in you know, the US and the UK and, you know, we say it's the, the paucity of ambition. You know, there's no ambition anymore. You know, we're not striving to go to the moon anymore. You know, we, we, we're harking back, we're looking backwards. And um, the, 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 as I said, modernism has had its failings, but at the root of it all was, you know, optimism and improving people's lives. And that's why we do what we do. You know, we, we, we're optimistic and, you know, we, we want it in our own tiny little way, in our own little corner of the world to improve people's lives. What inspired and got you into the modernist in the first place and then becoming co-editor of the modernist magazine whilst infusing your perspective on your creative process? The long-held desire in all my adult life never to get a proper job um i've never been great at working for the man so to speak i've been sacked from virtually every job i've ever had (laughs) so um you you think i'm joking but i'm not um but it's kind of i i don't um i you know i never signed up for this i never signed there was there was never any plan and um so 
we need to go back uh, 10 years, really. I mean, I, I've always kind of liked articulating myself in various ways, um, you know, through various, various means. And most of the time I've, I've got, a, I'd like to think I've got enough self-awareness to know that I'm pretty mediocre at lots of things. And I don't mind being mediocre at lots of things. I, 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 I'm very comfortable. Um, as I said, I, I've never been great at holding a job down. I've never been particularly good at sport. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm pretty mediocre at, at lots of things. But um, so we have to go back to about 10, 12 years ago. And I was a, a full-time house husband. My wife was the main breadwinner. As I said, I, I'm a pretty much, I was a deadbeat really. And um, I was, I was always, I'd got interested in uh, modernist architecture uh, because I, 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 you know, I, I like absorbing things. I like my, um, local environment. I, li- I like the environment, you know, the, the, especially the urban environment. And um, it all came about. Um, I, I was living in Salford, which, for those of you who don't know, is like the, uh, the the city. It's like New Jersey is to New York, if you like. It, it's it's a it's a city right next to Manchester, and that's where my family are from. And this was the mid nineties and there was a beautiful old cinema building, which had lain empty for 20 odd years uh, as a, you know, a 1930s cinema, which, which Britain had lots of as probably did in the States as well. You know, every small town would have at least one cinema. Most big cities had 10, 20, 30 big cinemas. And this, and I just thought it was a big shame, you know, um, part of, you know, as I've grown older and a lot more sensible, um, my biggest sort of gripe is wasted opportunities. Um, I hate to see wasted opportunities, missed opportunities. Uh, and I don't mean that in a particularly like, you know, right wing uh, Gordon Gecko kind of way. It's just, I, I, I wander the streets, especially in Britain. And I see, you know, buildings that are just lying rotting and, and it's, and it's bad, you know, it's, it's bad on, on every, you know, virtually every single level from a sustainability level, from a environmental level, from a society level. Anyway, I, I digress. And anyway, I got involved in a campaign to save this cinema and I wasn't particularly, you know, interested in architecture per se. I was more interested in, you know, the, the, the fact that this building uh, could have another life and, um, yeah, and, and I, politics did come into it. I felt, you know, there was the, the, there was a evil property developers were circling and wanted to knock this building down, and you know there was a lack of good um, uh, social facilities in that particular area. Salford, Salford's quite deprived, and I just again it just agitated me. So the more I was got into this campaign to try and save this building, the more interested I got in 1930s cinema buildings and. I, you know, I started to get a lot more interested in, and suddenly, you know, just the very nature of the sort of person I am, I started, you know, researching them and, you know, uh, photographing them. And if ever I would visit a city, I'd I'd go and find all these lovely little abandoned cinemas in suburbs, which, you know, th- th- at the time there were hundreds, but also at the time, a lot of them would be demolished. So, um, you know, always one for the, you know, sticking up for the, uh, the little guy, you know, I've, I've, I kind of felt sorry for these cinemas. Some of them were quite grand. Some of them were quite, anyway, long story short. So if you know anything about cinemas, you know, you know, a lot of them were built with Art Deco flourishes and some of them were built in the modern style. And from there, you know, I got an interest in what we call interwar uh, architecture. And then from there, I got interested in modernist architecture. You know, I, I, had, I left school when I was 16. I had no um, formal educational background. As I said, I was a bit of a deadbeat. So anyway, um, in my late 20s, I went back to university to try and get my degree. And I kind of formalised it a bit and, you know, got a bit more academically interested in architecture. And, you know, I'm a very proud Mancunian for those of you who don't know, a Mancunian, somebody who comes from Manchester, you know, we have a very strong civic pride in Manchester. We're very proud of our city and we've got a very rich history. So I was very interested in that as well. And it all kind of fed in together. And before I, before I knew it, 
you know, I was a self-confessed expert on modernist architecture in Manchester. And so, I, you know, I, people would come to me for, you know, the audit radio interviews, stuff like that. With If they were demolishing a building, they'd say, oh, you know, they'd flick the Rolodex, so to speak, and say, right, uh, a renter, a renter mouth to talk about, you know, modernist architecture. And, you know, it's, it's Manchester is a village and people get to know you and what have you. And if you hang around long enough, everybody get a little bit of reputation for yourself, at least for yourself. And then, so, 12 years ago, um, a couple of friends uh, said, oh, have you seen this Facebook group a couple of people have set up called the Manchester Modernist Society? And I went, oh, right, that sounds right up my street. And it was started by uh, two friends called Jack Hale and Maureen Ward. They, they'd worked together and they came from a, an artist background. And they were fully aware, again, as many of you might listen to this might not know the history of Manchester is, you know, it's the first Victorian industrial city. It was the birth of the Industrial Revolution. Um, you know, the cotton industry, the railway industry, you know, it's a pioneering city, but it was kind of more known for its Victorian architecture and its art. And um, that's not what our city's about, especially in the UK. A lot of, you know, the vast majority of our cities in the UK uh, 20%, uh, 20th century. Um, I read a figure somewhere that uh, I think 80% of us live in a 20th century house. Not, you know, most people don't live in modern, modernist with the capital M houses. But our cities are, you know, predominantly 20th century. And we, you know, we in the great, great Britain, we suffered, our city centre suffered from, from bombing. Uh, and destruction, so there was some a lot of post post war reconstruction, and uh, architecture, like anything, goes in fashion stages. And I use the analogy of architecture, you know, being like a child, and when they're young and they're a little baby and they're beautifully pristine, everybody loves them, and then they turn into teenagers and they become obnoxious and nobody wants them in the house and they start smelling a bit and uh, nobody wants to look after them. But then they mature and they, they grow up into uh, fine, ad- upstanding adults and that's when people appreciate them again. Yeah. So when we're talking about architecture from the 1960s, I say when you when you reach the 90s and the noughties, they were in their teenage years. They were in their difficult teenage years. Uh, they had been neglected. They were, you know, overlooked, taken for granted in, in many respects, and uh, they hadn't yet matured enough for people to appreciate them from a historical point of view. They were still fresh in the memory, and also there's quite a, there was quite a lot of stigma around uh, 1960s uh, architecture, mainly based on people's preconceptions about social housing and the in inverted commas failure of social housing. So, you know, the vast majority of the British public see 1960s architecture as, for want of a better word, concrete monstrosities. And I obviously didn't think this. I was a, I was a big fan of the style. And the more I found out about it, you know, the more I found out about the ethos and the, the codes of modernism yeah. and, and um why, why certain buildings were built and you know a lot and a lot of it was built in a very strong spirit of optimism about re, re, uh, reconstruction after the Second World War tied in with the welfare state, the National Health Service, uh, the growth of the education sector. So it, when you start tying that all in together, they start becoming buildings and they start becoming part of a movement. The, the modern movement. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, this is a very long way. So I'll just go back to what I was saying about Jack and Maureen. They came from an arts background and they kind of needed somebody who had a little bit, you had the chops when it came to architectural history. And I liked the cut of their jib. Um, you know, I liked where they were coming from. They came from a very positive place. They wanted to celebrate this. Yeah. It wasn't about conservation. Uh, and heritage with a capital H. It was more of a case of, you know, let's celebrate this. And when you celebrate something, it, it 
potentially helps to change people's perceptions. If you uh, say something has worth, then you would hope that other people see that worth. Even if you're the only person on the planet who thinks this thing has worth, then it could potentially bring other people along with you. Yeah. Uh, so from a particular, you know, from a philosophical point of view, there was that intention. And so then we had to sort of translate that into, you know, a real thing. And we kind of made a rod for our own back very early on by calling it a society. Uh, because a society suggests that it's a group of people, um, members, if you like. But it wasn't. It was me, Jack and Maureen, who were at the time considered cranks, who just wanted to do stupid things, daft things, fun things, based around our interest in modernist design and architecture. So we, we you know, we, we lived in isolation, and and we didn't have a, we didn't have any aspirations to do anything. But we thought there must be other people out there who are interested in this sort of thing. So the very first thing we did was organise. Um, for want of a better word, a garden party. We have in Manchester, we have a university campus very close to the city centre. It's a post-war campus built in with great idealism, a great congregation of, of great modernist buildings. And as lots of these campuses do, do they have you know green areas. So we said, uh, we put it out, I think we would have put it out on Facebook or something like that saying, are you interested in modernist architecture? Please meet us on Saturday afternoon at 3 p.m., blah, 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 blah. Anyway, about 20 people turned up, and that was nice. So we thought, oh, there are there are 20 other cranks out there who yeah. are interested in this sort of thing. And one thing led to another. We organised another couple of events, and more people came. And, and uh, you know, it's, it became a bit of a, a gang. I don't like to use the word clique because we've always um, – We've always tried to be very inclusive. The events we do, we hope we do with the magazine. It's not academic. It's not high, if you like. You know, if you, um, it's uh, it's a mix. It's it's not. It's popularist, but not um, yeah. too popularist. It's not. We don't try not to dump things down. Anyway, so after about a year, we we realised that we were surrounded by quite a few people who were passionate about this subject who could string a sentence together who were articulate uh you know they came from a really interesting mix of backgrounds academia the arts uh architectural historians um and we realized that you know that perhaps we you know we need to pull these interests together because these interests were being lost in the ether. They weren't being formalised and they weren't being literally put down on paper. And some of these interests, these people that we know, are quite niche. You know, they're, 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 And we have a saying within the modernist, uh, nothing is too nerdy. So, you know, if somebody's really into, uh, for example, uh, bins or trash cans, as you call them in America, yeah, write an article about trash cans. That's exactly what we want to hear about. And we have in the in the magazine. Um, I wrote a, an article for the very first issue of the magazine about tripe. And for those of you who don't know, um, tripe is uh, the stomach linings of a cow. And in the 1950s, 60s, after the post-war rationing, it was considered a little bit of a delicacy. And... Uh, a whole range of tripe restaurants were set up, but they were all very, very high class and they were all very nicely furnished. So I wrote an article about tripe. And we like to think there is no magazine on, on the planet that would write an article about tripe, for better or worse. And that's kind of where we, we came to. So Jack said to me after about a year of running the, the, uh, the, the Modernist Society as a group, said, I want to start a magazine. And you've got to remember this was, well, 10 years ago when the banner headlines were print is dead. You know, people, you know, everything was going over to the internet. Magazines were, you know, even some well-established magazines were coming to an end because, you know, everything was going digital. And I said, are you insane? You want to start a magazine? We haven't got um, a penny to our name and you want to start a magazine. Anyway, I, you know, this, this was... 
everything we do is folly. You know, everything we do is folly, and it's but it, you know, it's, it's good folly, and it's better to quote a cliche to regret something you have done than something you haven't. Yeah. So I said, okay, then come on, let's start a magazine. Because as I said, we we could we could cobble together 10, 12 people we knew who could write a, a, a nice article. We set in the agenda very early on. You know, we we we've never paid uh, our con- contributors because we haven't because we're a non-profit. We've always relied on uh, the goodwill of designers, and we were quite lucky as we 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 knew somebody in our sphere had uh, just uh, graduated from college with a graphic design degree and they were looking for some work. And it was, you know, it was serendipitous. And so we got Des to design it for free. Everybody contributed for free. And we did a very early uh, version of crowdfunding. Yeah. We, pre- we pre-sold the first issue. We, you know, we put it out amongst our uh you know, our socials saying we're thinking of starting a magazine. Please sign up for this magazine. Anyway, 200, 300 people signed up for it. And it was just like, whoa, now, now we've got to make this thing. Um, so they signed up for a year. They signed up for a year. And again, we, we made our, a rod for our own bat because when you people sign up for subscription, they expect the magazine to drop through the letterbox four times a year. Yeah. Uh, where there's, um, I, I have the, um, the, the, the the analogy is I use. It's it's the Robert Duval versus James Dean syndrome when it comes to publishing. So Robert Duval, James Dean, their careers pretty much started roughly around the same time. Robert Duval obviously was in To Kill a Mockingbird. Went on to star in some amazing movies, had a long career doing good, solid, robust roles. Still going, as far as I know. I think he still turns up. and, and But, you know, never, you know, you'd never see him in the tabloids. And then you've got James Dean. Uh, live fast, die young, make three amazing films. So in the publishing world, I think we are Robert Duval, and I'm very happy to be Robert Duval. But there are also magazines out there. Um, the first issue comes out. And they've clearly spent a lot of money on it. It looks absolutely beautiful. It looks great. The second issue comes out. It doesn't look so great because the real realities of running a magazine suddenly have hit home, it seems. And then you might see a third. Very unlikely you're going to see a fourth. Now, I don't have any problem with that. We need magazines like that. We need uh, magazines to shine beautifully and bright and then burn out very quickly. But we as a magazine have always been quite Robert Duvalish, you know, under the radar, always cut our cloth accordingly. Uh, we've never taken advertising, love to take some advertising if anybody wants to do it, but yeah. <laughs> I don't think many mainstream advertisers would be interested in a magazine about bins and tripe. So, um, so we've, you say we've always been very, um, how can I put it? Not unambitious, but but realistic about you know what we can do with, with with very limited resources. So as I say, going back, we've always relied on uh, you know the generosity of designers and contributors, and I think people have responded to that. Well, of course they responded to it because we're up to the thirty seventh issue, and I think what people like about the magazine is that it's kind of written by its readers. You yeah, that the, 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 there are the, the the demographic we're aiming at are the people who buy the magazine. Now, that's a stupid thing so, but to say, but, uh, you know, if somebody comes to us with an interesting idea and it fits in with the theme, then we'll say, yeah. And they say, well, I'm not really a writer. I said, that's fine. I don't, we, we don't care. You know, just write it in your own voice. And, uh, you know, I said, we, we try and mix it up a bit with academia because uh, with a little bit of academic rigour, because that gets you into places, you know, um, to be completely pragmatic about it, people take you a bit more seriously if there's a bit of academic rigor to it. And sometimes that unlocks funding and, and collaborations yeah. with, you know, rich institutions like universities and stuff like that. And, and I say, but at the heart of everything we've done has been collaboration. You know, if there's one thing that we did, which is the modernist is based on its collaboration. Um, we, uh, we've in the last couple of years, we've been, we've introduced guest editors 
because uh, Maureen, for various reasons, she she left us after about two or three years and uh, went her own way. So it's left to me and Jack, who uh, were two white heterosexual northern men uh, with our own, you know, very interested. But sometimes the magazine was becoming a bit of a boys' club. Um, we noticed that one issue, every single contributor was a man. And, you know, we can't help what we are. We we are white heterosexual men and we uh, we have limited experiences and we wanted to open it up to other people, mainly because the magazine was, was starting to be written by the same set of contributors, which was fine. But, you know, there are lots of people out there with interesting things to say, interesting subjects. And so we introduced some guest editors uh, you know, who would hopefully bring something new to the party, their own, you know, group of people who are interested in things. And in the last 10 years, since the magazine's been going, I think our our little niche has expanded. You know, you can't move on Instagram and Facebook now for brutalist appreciation societies um, all bickering amongst themselves. Is this really brutalism? He said, but we, you know, we don't get into any of that. We, we don't, we don't get into any of that. It's, it's, we, we, we uh, and you know, you, you, you might be able to answer this better than us. You know, you, you've seen the magazine and you clearly like it. And, um, I, I, I'm always interested to know, you know, why people like it. It's because we make it for ourselves, you know, we, we, we um, and I think, I think at the heart of any creative process is, and again, this is a massive cliche, you have to make something for yourself, you know, and if anybody comes along with it, that's just gravy. That's just a bonus. Um, As things develop, you know, as I said, there are are people relying on you, you know, you you have to deliver four magazines a year, but it's never, you know, it's never, it's never tedious. It's never a bind. Oh, we've got to get another magazine. It's like, right, come on, let's get it. And, Let's get it out. Let's get it out, which keeps it, hopefully, hopefully, say, keeps it fresh. Uh, you, 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 you as a reader, a subscriber might be able to tell us, uh, tell me otherwise. But, uh, you know, we've, we've lost subscribers along the way because it's, you know, maybe it's too niche or not niche enough or um, the graphic design is too challenging for some people or, uh, for various reasons, but on the whole, it's been a steady, uh, you know, it's just been a steady growth. It's not been, and, you know, say we, we, me and Jack are men of a certain age, we're not interested in, you know, f- uh, fast results, quick results. We're in it We're in it for the long run. We'd rather, as I say, be a Robert Duval than a James Dean. So um, yeah. anyway, so there we are. And, and there we are. We're up to, where are we? 10 years later, 37 Issues uh, still going. <laughs> I like how you've democratised the publishing process by making it available to and making it possible for all people to understand and contribute to from both a writing and editorial perspective, along with your crowdsourcing model where you've allowed people to help self-finance it fr- from your community of interest to achieve a cumulative result. And also your your praxis theory of independence, that ethos of just doing something because you believe in it and you have an urge just to simply do it, invent the reasons why you did that later. Put simply, you learn why you do something by actually doing it. And that comes through prominently within your approach to creativity and your creative process by how you initiate and iteratively evolve ideas into their final form and bring them to life through a progression of of thoughts and and actions. Paying homage to your prior points about being a catalyst and cultural storyteller for modernist architecture by connecting the dots from the past to the present, by educating and entertaining your audience in a sincere, beautiful and engaging way. It triggered other thoughts as I was listening to you. Le Corbusier pioneered modern architecture by transforming industrial housing into tenement buildings that mirrored streets at ground level and maximised space with back-to-back housing. And I, I first came aware of this 
um, and Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange uh, movie that created a futuristic world. Um, and similarly with, with, with Park Hill, the public housing estate in, in Sheffield, South Yorkshire in England, which was inspired by Le Corbusier Streets in the Sky. Uh, similarly, um, in Manchester, where you have Holm Crescents, and also in Leeds, where there's the Quarry Hill Estate, and there's many other um, similar social housing um, estates across the, 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 the north of England. But Brutalist followed that modernist cry to promote positive alternatives for contemporary and modern urban housing developments, where form followed function, and rejecting the early 20th century eclectic revitalist movements, such as Gothic, as an example, and Victorian um, architecture. Instead, it let its buildings resemble what they really are. To, to your point er- earlier, that was so poignantly um, articulated around uh, how you view architecture similarly to the evolution of children. A specific example as it relates to brutalism, as high-rise buildings became associated with crime, urban decay and social depravation, and many of those buildings were demolished, though thankfully some did survive this architectural holocaust, such as the Barbican Estate in London, which is one of the finest manifestations of brutalist utopian style and idealism for inner-city living. If there is a, if there is a, a model... Um, we've, we, we, we based ourselves on, on three, uh, institutions for want of a better word. Yes. Some, some that you may know and some that you might not know. Um, the, the first one is Apple, not Apple Corporation, uh, Apple, Apple Records, yeah. the Beatles label. Yeah. And basically they, they, they obviously made a shitload of money and then they surrounded themselves by their mates and put out records by their mates, essentially. And um, sometimes the quality control wasn't great, but um, it was a, you know, it was a community and and it was done for all the right reasons. You, you know, we're not going to lose the same amount of money that they did, but, um, you know, it was a creative output. It was done uh, uh, with creativity in mind. The second organisation, and it's very difficult to get away from it in Manchester's Factory Records. Yeah. Um, the way Factory Records was done, um, you know, everything was uh, very beautiful, beautifully done, with a certain irreverence, but at the same time, um, a certain um, integrity yeah. as well. You know, it, everything was done with integrity, um, but in a very Mancunian way. and. Again, I, I could probably go on a, long, a lot about this, but a, a few years ago, I um, was watching a, an old uh, recording of, of Tony Wilson, who, for those of you who don't know, ran Factory Records, and he was talking about Praxis, and it, it piqued my interest, and so I looked a little bit more into it, and Tony Wilson was a big fan of, of Praxis, and the more I looked into it, and I, this was totally unknowing, I just thought, that's exactly what we do, yeah. you know. So, without patronising anyone, the praxis was Aristotle. Um, it was the, the 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 three parts of of man or human beings: yeah. the thinking, making, and doing. And it, it is what defines us as human beings. But it was also say it also uh, Wilson expanded it. He said, "You do something and you put it out in the world, and then." You reflect back on it. You know, you you, yeah. you serve it up to, to the people, and it's what they how they respond to it is is why you do it. You uh, you do something um, without knowing why you're doing it, just because you can, just because you can. So there was that. Uh, so there's the factory model and praxis, um, and but also <laughs> uh, people of a certain age in Britain might remember a program called uh, the Rise and Fall of Reginald Perry. Yeah. And um, this was about a guy who was disillusioned with the mainstream life. He So he faked his own suicide. Anyway, he came back from his own suicide under a, a pseudonym um, and accumulated unwittingly a huge amount of wealth. And he didn't want this wealth. So he set up um, uh, what he called the grot shop, where he set up a shop selling things nobody he thought nobody would want to buy. Um, in the hope of, of 
getting rid of all his fortune. Anyway, ironically, um, this shop was a huge success. People did want to buy all this stuff and it was a, a huge dilemma. So go back to what we were saying, uh, just the whole overriding thing is when we first started, we thought to ourselves, who would want to buy a magazine with an article about tripes and public toilets and the elephant enclosure at London Zoo? Anyway, turns out people did. So then we, you know, we got into our merchandise and we thought, when we very first started, we thought, who would want to buy a badge with the word brutalist written on it? Anyway, turns out thousands of people do want to buy a badge with uh, brutalist written on it. And that's kind of the ethos we have behind our products. And, you know, to a certain extent, it's what we do is like we try and find a, a daft idea in the hope that nobody's going to respond to it. But it's it. We're all consistently wrong because people do respond to it. And as you so kindly said, it's I think because we do it with an irreverence and a humour, but at the same time, with an integrity as well is, you know, with the factory records things, we try and make things as nice as possible within, you know, with our very limited resources. You know, the magazine is, is produced very, very cheaply, but I think we get a lot of bang for our book, you know. Um, and I think people appreciate that. Uh, we try very, very hard to make the magazine as, as nice as we can afford it and, and keep it accessible as well. Uh, it just in terms of cost, you know, um, we could charge a couple of quid more. I'm sure people will pay for it, but I personally am very conscious of making it at a price uh, that makes it accessible for people because I do want people to pick it up in my local pub, which I, you know, I, I leave a copy in the pub and, and I know people pick it up thinking, what's this? And they, you know, some people might think, what's this nonsense? But I know for a fact people have picked it up in the pub, would never think of buying it and read it and, and read it from cover to cover because it's just, oh, I've, ne I've never read an article about that. I've never read, you know, or I didn't not, I didn't know that about that. And that's kind of what, you know, we're, that's what we're here for to, to go back to our original. If, if we do have an ethos is to, is to open people's eyes to, uh, you know, shine a light in the, in the dark corners of, of modernism. Your appointment of Johnny Marr as a key patron is a masterstroke because I believe so many of the, th the themes, principles and values that you embellish, he personifies that. We can't take any, you know, um, kudos for that, is is that there's the story, going back to what you, I think what you said, um, uh, I'm glad you've name-dropped Johnny Marr because I didn't, don't really like to, <laughs> to name-drop him. Um, you know, we, we, we asked him, Wants what what he liked about is and he's you know he's very lyrical and he's you know he's very cool and and yeah, you know and he said because you're pure you know yeah and that's that's all that's all he said so the he's a perfect example is you know he was never he was never on our radar I'm not a massive Smiths fan I, you know he, obviously he's a he's a he's a, a, a living legend around Manchester and you know and he you know, bumped into him in a couple of times and he's always been very nice. But, he, you know, we, we anyway, uh, the we've got Ali, uh, who sort of is an official fan club member to thank because she runs, she's, she lives in Australia. And she, for some reason, I don't know how, uh, she got hold of the magazine. And Johnny Marr fans are obsessive, you know, they, yeah. they, they, they worship the ground he works walks on. And she read a copy of the magazine and she... She thought Johnny would like this uh, because, you know, they live, live, breathe and eat Johnny and they know he's <laughs> anyway. So she sent him a copy of the magazine and apparently he read it from cover to cover. There was and, and he said, this magazine is made for me. Every single article is 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 me. So he got in touch and he said, uh, love, love what you're doing. He said, next time I'm in town, I'll uh, I'll call in. Anyway, when Johnny Barr sends you an email saying next time you're in town, I'll call in. You think, yeah, yeah, of course he is. Anyway, Jack turns up at the office one day and Johnny Marr was stood outside the office in the street. Wow. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't there. So uh, Jack invited him in, gave him a cup of tea, and he sat there for two hours. And, and, uh, and you know, he's, he's been, he wore one of our badges on uh, the Johnny Carson show. Um, and again, it goes back to... He did a video. Um, oh God! See, this is what, what a terrible Johnny Marr fan. I am. Um, 
and uh, the video was shot in and around Manchester. A lot of the locations were yeah. modernist buildings. Yeah. So anybody, somebody sent to us, oh, we've seen this. Anyway, it turns out that they'd used uh, one of our books and our website to source locations for it. Um, High Town Velocity, that was the one. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he, so he kind of, he, he, we were on his, we were on his radar then, and then when he got the magazine, and you know, he's, he, he, uh, you know, and say Johnny's a really, you know, he's a lovely, lovely, lovely man, unlike his former colleague you know he's a, again it's a massive cliche he's he is the sort of person who would turn up at the office and just sit there for a couple of hours and have a chat and and you know he's he's very well read and he's very rounded you know he's he's not he's not one-dimensional um you know he's he's been he's a lovely he's a lovely uh patron to have um and i say it's not a coup on our part he came, he came to us we didn't go um and i say i go back to what you were saying it, he said, he, you know, he likes us because we're pure. You know, we, yeah. we're not corrupted by uh, advertising or, or you know, you know, we're not chasing the dollar. You know, yeah, we, we, <laughs> yeah I wish we were. <laughs> I really wish we were, but we don't because you say up until very recently, you know, uh, we were all volunteers. Um, it's only since we've moved into our new premises, which you've seen, is that, you know, we've had to be a bit more organised and, and uh, we were very lucky with funding, so that pays some wages. But uh, you know, I, the vast majority of my work is is voluntary. Yeah. And again, people in Manchester like that. People can smell bullshit a mile away. If they see you're doing it for the, all the right reasons, then you know, give a little love, and it all comes back to you. Yeah, that's you know, exactly right. We, we, we're not. You could say we've been lucky, but it's not. It's that we, you know, we don't take the piss out of people. Um, if there's money to be to be given we, we will give people money but they know that we haven't got any money they see that the amount of work well to be honest with you a lot of people don't see the amount of work is that people turn up at our office and find there's only two or three of us and there's like where's the rest of you yeah. and it's just like no this is it this is yeah. it this is uh, this is us and it's just like really you say yeah <laughs> so, so what so, so what what do you do then Eddie? I said this is what I do you know and you say um so yeah so as I said especially in Manchester you know, there's a tall poppy syndrome in Manchester. Um, people could smell bullshit. Yeah. Uh, they don't like people taking the piss. Um, and we don't. I, 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 well, I hope we don't. We've never had anybody, you know, say, you know, um, you know, we, we, we respect everybody who helps us out. Uh, we give them their props. And, you know, if we can pay them, we will pay them. But <laughs> we haven't got any money at the best of times. So, and, yeah, I hope that. You know, hope that has paid dividends because we're still going and we're prospering, and um, yeah, you know, we're it's, not making huge strides, but we, you know, we, 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 you know, sometimes I sit in our gallery and I think, where did this come from? <laughs> it's a big responsibility, and uh, and I say, well, going going back to people like you as well. You know, when I first started sending you the magazine, I was just like. Why am I sending this magazine to San Diego? You know, how did he find out about us? And you know, it's it's really it's really really humbling. Um, and we sell it. We you know we sent hundreds to you know America. I think Johnny has a lot to do. With, Johnny had a lot to do with our American, you know, reaching out to America. But we send all over the world now, and it, and it's kind of mind blowing. You know that we've got this tiny little magazine in Manchester, written by dorks and nerds on very niche subjects, but it's really. Um, that's to say, humbling when people get it, you know, they, they yeah. get it, you know. It, um, and I think, again, without being too wanky about it, um, I think that's one of the things about modernism is, you know, it's a, it's a universal language. Does that yes. does that sound a bit wanky? Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, people, people, and people get it all over the world. Yeah. You know, people from different cultures and different, uh, you know, countries. You, see, you know, we we send loads to america we said loads to australia uh, south america europe and stuff like that and you know i think even the cultural differences um it, it fascinates me it really yeah. does fascinate me and, and, and we're really really you know we, we love all our subscribers but you know we particularly love you know our, our foreign subscribers because it's you know it's so great that people on the other side of the planet dig what we do reflecting on some of the points you made that that triggered a few things in, in my head Karma is about pushing forward for the greater good and living your life guided by your, your passions with a positive and progressive attitude and being authentic and true to yourself. 
and cultivating lifelong relationships and partnerships grounded in honesty, transparency, and trust. And if you're authentic, determined, and always willing to put a full shift in, goodness comes. To fall in love with your craft and what you do, and to pursue it with intensity, freeing yourself from others' expectations and walking away from the games and boundaries that's imposed upon you. Architecture and design influences how people feel and it connects emotionally and deeply and it speaks a global language that everyone can connect to regardless of their native language and their cultural identity, similarly to what music can do. You know, it, it's hard work, as I said. We, we, oh, um you know, without going too much in the discrecy about you know who who gets paid and who doesn't get paid is I I don't get paid a huge amount of money um, I do not get out of bed for money you know I get yeah. out of bed for nothing if I can avoid it um, I have to get out of bed for a reason in the morning and I have to do stuff because I want to do it I'm that kind of person I'm not motivated by money um, but I put in, you know, I'm here talking to you when I could yeah. be sat downstairs watching the telly, having a beer, but I'd rather speak to you about this because I like talking about it. It's, it's great. It's, 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 it's my thing, you know, it's, it's our thing. It, it, I, I dig it. And um, I love talking about it because, you know, I'm, I'm not evangelical is not the word, but um, you say it's just brilliant to be talking to you about something that we've done and that, that, um, that you dig and hopefully, uh, all the people listening to this podcast would dig, and and um, that but that makes it worthwhile. You know that that yeah. that makes all them late night emails and what does somebody call uh, project backlog? <laughs> it's just I've got so many so many things, and and I was joking with Trevor Johnson the other day about this. Is we, we, we've got a few projects. Uh, Trevor, for those of you who don't know, you uh, did a lot of work for Factory Records. He designed lots of flyers, and, and now he's a good friend of ours. We, we did an exhibition for the 40th anniversary of Factory in the gallery last year with him. So he's become a very he's a you know he's a very generous, again a very Mancunian thing. He you know he, he won't take any money from us. You know he, Trevor's at the top of his game. You know he's a, he's a bit of a legend. And um, but I was joking to him saying we keep saying to him, "Do you want to do this next project with us?" And he's just like. Yeah, go on then. And it's to say, you know, we can't pay you. So I know you can't pay me, but we'll do it anyway. And we just, so we just keep loading all these projects up. But the thing is, is that they're great projects. Yeah. I can I can say no to anybody. You know, if somebody comes to me with a stupid daft idea, not a daft idea, but an idea that I don't dig, I'll just say, no, I'm not going to do that. That's not what we do. But people come to us with great ideas and we have to say yes to them because, you know, <laughs> life's too short. And, 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 We've got lo- you know, got loads of things, and it, it, and it's great, but it's tiring, you know. That that there's so many great projects we've got coming up, and you know, we've we've just not got the there's not enough hours in the day to do them, and we want to do them all. You know, we want to do them. There's none of them we're doing. You know, some of them might even lose money um, in a very factory way, but um, um, so we've got a bit of a backlog, and especially with you know. I don't want to say the C word because I hate the way it dominates the conversation, but we have to talk about it because it's been a very frustrating year for us because a lot of our work is, you know, getting out and about and and meeting people and doing stuff. And it's been very frustrating for us that we've not been able to do stuff, you know, Um, you know, we, 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 we get, we've had, we've been able to get the magazine out, which has been great because a lot of it's published remotely, you know, a lot, you know, our contributors all over the world and, uh, thankfully our printer was able to work through covid so we got the magazine out so that kept us connected um and we, we we've been able to make some short films that we're releasing now but um it's the lack of productivity that i don't like you know um the lack of events you know engaging with our public uh otherwise you're just stuck in a you know stuck in a, in a room in an office in in manchester and that's not what we're about so that's that's been very frustrating for us, but um, we're still here, we're still doing it. You know, we we survived, which a lot of people, you know, unfortunately, a lot of organisations have really suffered. But we we've 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 done all right. We've we've we're still <laughs> going on. But I say it's just very frustrating that we can't plan and organise events and stuff like that because that's a big part of what we do. 
So, you know, we, we've been doing the magazine and we've been doing the publications and stuff like that and hopefully still connecting with our audience, you know, via them means. But, um, yeah, I wish we could I wish we could get back out there and, you know, do events again because, you know, we like, we love doing them. You're in a time machine and it's going backwards. Based on your lessons learned to date in terms of the pitfalls to avoid and the keys to success, what would you say to a younger Eddie? How far back are we going? <laughs> um, so maybe another way of asking it is if, if you were 18 again today and knowing what you do now, what would you do differently if at all anything? Nothing. Nothing at all. Yeah. Nothing at all. Um, um, no, you, you pass chosen, you know, and sliding doors and all, and all that and all that bullshit. But I, uh, you know, I was kind of again without going too deeply in it I spent 10 years as a full-time house husband very isolated uh, as anybody who's looked after small children will know it can be quite isolated um, so I didn't really you know socialize much in them 10 years but it sort of gave me a 10 years of, of uh, almost clarity you know but now that my kids have grown up and and I can uh, that was the, you know, that's the best thing. I'm clearly proudest of them, you know, three beautiful, wonderful children. Um, but then 10 years, you know, um, I was able to do other things because I wasn't motivated by work. Um, so I could I could gain the knowledge that I now have. Does that make sense? To, it makes total sense, yeah. Because, um, uh, you know, you've got a lot of time on your own and, you know, so you can, say, you can read or... You know, anybody who's had small children, you know, you, you you spend a lot of time walking the streets trying to get them to sleep and stuff like that. So you're gaining that. So, uh, you know, I I would never have changed anything and said I, I think my um, experiences as a deadbeat 20 year old uh, are useful because it, you know, uh, and then I spent my you know my 30s and my early 40s being a full time house husband, and then you know I finally come to a place now. My uh, my youngest daughter, she she said to me, you know, she's only eleven, and she said to me, she said, "Daddy, when when you were my age, uh, what would you have liked to have done? Do like to have done when you've grown up?" I said, uh, "Run my own magazine and have a gallery." And she went, "That's what you do, do." And I went, "I know, isn't it great?" So um, so, but, but, but you know, the, the, I, I'm a great believer. Again, without getting all too. Um, Tom Cruise about it is, you know, there's no such thing as a mistake. I've made many mistakes in my life, but, you know, it adds to your, you know, it adds to your fabric, if that's if that's the right word, and, and everything you've learned, you know, there's no such thing as a mistake. It's just a learning experience. So, um, no, I've got, I've got no regrets. Life's too, life's too short for regrets, isn't it? Um, and as I say, you, 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 you take um, parts of your life and hopefully you can ink, Inculcate is that the word? Inculcate is that even a word? Include it into you know what you what you're trying to achieve. I, I mean, I'm very very lucky. I'm doing something that I really like. I don't work in an office, you know, nine to five. Um, but I don't think I could have got to this place without previous experiences, which have been quite diverse. And you know, uh, I, again, I've maybe I've been indulged, maybe, <laughs> uh, but uh, so I'm quite happy where I am right now. This is a, a good place to be. I visited your gallery with a friend uh, last August. I believe your gallery is the only gallery in Manchester dedicated to architecture and design. How did that come about? To find affordable space. Uh, I mean, it's very, very difficult. So, you know, as you saw, we were right on the edge of the, the city centre, which is good because you don't get too many randoms wandering in. But... Um, um, yeah, we've got a sympathetic landlord and, you know, it's a nice spot. It's a great, great neighbours and good street and uh, the rent's, you know, affordable, which is unusual in Manchester. Yeah. And, you know, we, we kind of hope we're adding something to the cultural mixes because there just wasn't anywhere for, uh, you know, independent artists to put stuff. We haven't got an agenda, you know, as if yeah. we dig it, we put it in. We, um, uh, which, you know, most galleries have a selling agenda or a, you know, they're, they're big institutions, which takes three years to have an exhibition. Whereas we, 
you know, we don't have an agenda. We, if you, we like it, we'll put it on for you. Um, we can do that. And uh, I think that's something, again, it's been very frustrated about COVID that we've not been able to do that. It's yeah. completely buggered up our uh, exhibition programme, which we had, you know, we, we, we returned, you know, we, we had a two-year exhibition programme. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, we, which hopefully we'll get that back on track. Our office was on the third floor of one of the oldest buildings in Manchester, like an 18th century uh, old textile mill. Uh, but me and Jack were, going back to what I was, I was saying earlier about, uh, you know, two men stuck in a room and doing the events was the only time we interacted with our public. Yeah. And um, there was always the aspiration for us to to find a space where we could you know, express ourselves for want of a better word. And it coincided with this sort of closure of a couple of galleries in Manchester that, you know, used to put on architecture and design exhibitions. And, um, you know, we, 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 I'm honest, we'll be honest about it. There is a commercial side to what we do because that keeps the lights on. You know, we, yeah. we have to, have, we, we have to have an income because if we don't have an income, then, you know, the magazine doesn't get published. Um, and we, we can't do we can't do our work. So there is a commercial side to it. So, but go back to what I was saying, the the shop that we have is is you know it's a folly. Most of our sales are online. But so we looked around for a couple of years, looking for the right space in the right place, and it was either too expensive or too far out of town. And and even landlords, you know, you present yourself and you've shown the books, and they say, well, "Where's the profit in this?" And it's just like we're not, we're a non-profit, you know, and the, you know they just get you just get a blank look on their face. Sorry, don't understand. Does not compute. Um, how are you going to make money? So we, we let us worry about that. Don't worry about it. And landlords have turned us down because they just don't get it. Yeah. Anyway, we were very lucky with our landlord. He'd heard of us. He 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 knew us and a couple of mutual friends. And he you know he liked what we. Prepared. We were proposing because it wasn't a coffee shop, it wasn't a, a bar, it wasn't a barber's. It was something, and he was happy to put it in the mix of his buildings. Yeah, uh, because we we we, uh, we wanted a, a space that we, there were a couple of examples that we'd come across uh, around the world, but nowhere in, in Britain where it was a you know it was a shop, um, an event space, and a gallery. Um, and he he liked that, he did that, and uh, it, it's been difficult to. You know, people. Somebody, some people still wander in the shop and they go, "What? What is this? What is this?" I'm just like, "Oh God, can't you just work it out for yourself? Do we have to explain it to you?" <laughs> but, it's, but it's praxis. It's praxis all over again. You know, you 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 understand why you do something after doing it. You do it first, and then you understand afterwards. So, the you know, we we love the shop because it means we can fill it with nice, beautiful things. We love the gallery because we can put nice wall. We 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 can clear all the tables away and we put chairs in and have events and we can have film shows and stuff like that so it's a you know there are aren't many other places like it um about and obviously we've got our own agenda that has to be what we're into but you know we've had other things so and again that's again going back to covid it's that's been very frustrating we've not had the activity in the space that we really would have liked uh because it's nice getting people in through the doors who perhaps wouldn't normally come through when we have events on you know we have workshops and and talks and stuff like that um and that's been frustrating and we really really want to get that you know the the, the space isn't fulfilling uh, its fullest potential at the minute but there's nothing we can do about that so that's just a bit frustrating so say if anybody's in manchester please come and look us up uh we'd love to see you especially people from foreign lands that's always nice but uh because it's it's a real i'll go back earlier manchester's a village you know and in the shop it's uh it's just a, a, a long litany, long line of people just coming in, just talking, yeah. you know, just talking nonsense, basically. They're, their own little peccadilloes. And I, I would talk to anybody about anything. Uh, you know, hopefully it's a reflection of the magazine. You know, we'll talk about flamenco music if you want. Um, talk about uh, Olympic mascots. And that's the kind of conversations we have in the shop. You know, somebody, you know, it's lovely. It's people, people are interested and interesting. Um, yeah who are coming in the shop that, you know, and that, that everybody's got a little story to tell or, or have you heard about this Yugoslavian holiday resort? No, I haven't, but tell me all about it. And I will stand there and listen to Yugoslavian holiday resorts for an hour. Trust me. I know. Trust me. Um, so yeah, if anybody, you know, we'd love to see, 
see you in the shop at some time. That'd be lovely. Um, so have a check out the magazine. Unfortunately, we don't sell it in many shops in America. Um, but you know, you can subscribe online, but, um, and then, yeah, but please don't get me started on Brexit. That's a whole new thing coming down the line. It's just, which is putting a lot of stress on us as, as a, somebody who ships all around the world and to Europe, it's, um, it's, uh, very, ooh, yeah. I don't, I, yeah, can't talk about it, but it's, yeah. uh, because again, going back to what we were saying earlier, we, we, we're, you know, we're a global community. We, yeah. we don't think in that we don't think in those terms. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're brothers and sisters all over the world and, you know, one nation under a group. Indeed it is. Our outputs are the next generation's inputs. That comes with accountability and responsibility to pass the baton back to the children of the next generation by leaving the world in better shape than we entered it. So make it count. You have been listening to the Unknown Origins podcast. Please follow, subscribe, rate and review us. For more information, go to unknownorigins.com. Thank you for listening.